welcome to another episode of Management Muse. I'm your host, Cindy Baldy, and this is my husband and co-host, Jeffrey Tumlin. Yellow! Welcome to the podcast where we try to inspire better work performance. Thanks for listening. Hello, musers. Today is a mini-episode. This is an outtake from our culture episode with Willella Terefe, the chief medical executive of MD Anderson. We took this material out of the main culture episode with Willella because we wanted to keep the culture conversation focused on culture, but we also didn't want you to miss her brilliant mind when it starts laying down lessons. Here is the wonderful Willella talking about health inequality. Even if you look just at the state of Texas, mm-hmm. um, the state of Texas has... Um, pretty poor health outcomes compared to many other states in the union for a lot of reasons. We have uh, the country's highest number and percentage of uninsured children. Um, We have one of the lowest rates of HPV vaccination for adolescents. And as you know, HPV vaccination can effectively uh, eliminate certain cancers, including cervical cancer and certain head and neck cancers. Um, We have um, significant disparities in cancer survival by uh, race and ethnicity. In cancers where we have, like, achieved huge home runs that should be realized for everybody. Right. What's an example of a cancer where there's a, would you consider a A home run? Oh. Yeah, I was thinking about it. Yeah. I'll speak to what I know best, which is breast cancer. So since the early 1990s, survival rates for breast cancer have been improving at about 2% per year. And um, at this point, even the majority of women diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer are still alive five years after diagnosis. And for stage 1 breast cancer, it's virtually 100%. And so that's changed in your lifetime? Yes. Yes, and it's been a significant continuous improvement, which we haven't seen across all adult cancers. And so what's the disparity with the races? So uh, black women are significantly more likely to die of breast cancer than white women. And for Native Americans, um, the death rates have actually been worsening in recent years, while everybody else's has been. And is that just not getting in for the care? Like, what what do you see as the cause for the disparity? It's complex. Um, Some of it, I want to acknowledge it up front and then sort of poo-poo it after that. Okay. Because even when you control for it, it goes goes away. Um, Some of it has to do with the type of cancer that black women are more likely to get. And that's probably related to certain shared genetic traits for um, people originating from West Africa. So uh, black women in this country are more likely to get triple negative breast cancer. And triple negative breast cancer afflicts about 15% of women who have breast cancer overall. It's associated with a more aggressive course. It requires aggressive chemotherapy to be treated and it's got a higher risk of relapse. I just lost a friend to that. Mm -hmm. She's Native American, 50%. Yeah. So uh, it is true that black women are more likely to get a more aggressive form of breast cancer than white women. But once you control for the type of cancer, we still see major disparities in outcomes. And so then, of course, the next thing people would say is, well, it's about access to care, which is related to socioeconomic status, having insurance. Being able to take work off. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, well, those are sort of harder to, it's easier to measure things like right, what I is did. your income and do you actually have commercial insurance or any kind of insurance? And once you adjust for that, then the rates of survival narrow some more, but they do not overlap. Socioeconomic status is not a proxy for race. Um, and what Tell I would me that say. Again. So there's, you, it's different. Race and SES, race and socioeconomic, uh, it's, there's, it's not just SES that's impacting this. Correct. It's race besides SES. And when I say race, I don't mean the color of my skin and my genetics, right? So I've already removed out. Okay. What might be the genetic shared traits that are right, resulting right, in, right? right, right. Now I'm going to remove out socioeconomic status, okay. which of course Where's rich, is, poor, basically. Right, yeah. right. So then what we're left with is the difference appears to be due to race. Well, race is a social construct. So actually the difference is due to racism. Systemic racism. Right, because you've got the oh, biological, you controlled the biological yeah, 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 yeah. with race, mm-hmm. with the genetics. Mm-hmm. And so now it's just... And so so then what are what do you think... So, so I think if I'm following this, you're saying when you look carefully at the control studies that a, at least a non-trivial amount of the disparity in outcomes is because of racism. It is. And what's an example of racism that impacts a black woman to increase her mortality from breast cancer? Well, it's not, it's, so those are, those are hard to measure, right? Right. It's kind of the black box. It's the black box, but I would say I would, I would, I would. Only because it's left over? No, only, only because, because it's, hard to measure. it's hard to measure. Okay. Right. So what I would say is, um, getting at it kind of indirectly, that some of it is about social distance between the caretake, caregivers, care providers, and the patient, right? right? The more we identify with patients, the more likely we are right. to take their complaints seriously, mm-hmm. to ensure that they get timely care, okay. to uh, manage things like their pain, to accurately even diagnose them. There's tons of data on that. Um, Case studies uh, with uh, physicians and other care providers where they're given vignettes that clearly point to a person that is presenting to the ER with symptoms of a heart attack. And then you flash a picture. And if that picture is of a black woman, they're much less likely to diagnose a heart attack than if it's of a white man. And that plays out in the lower rates of accurate and timely diagnosis of heart attack in uh, women of color, for example. Um, Another study, which, again, you're sort of getting at it indirectly, which showed, you know, maternal and fetal mortality rates are much, or infant mortality rates are much higher for black people in this country than for white people. And that is true even after, again, you correct for education, socioeconomic status, et cetera. Genetics. Well, it's hard to account for, you know, the truth is genetics is a gigantic black box that we should generally be incredibly skeptical about. Um, Triple negative breast cancer is one of those few sort of genetic signals where you can say, well, it's more common in people who have a West African origin. Um, But most of the time, you cannot point to a single genetic or even a group of genetic traits. Um, For cancer? For anything. I mean, for anything. There's very little that's, that's really connected specifically to just a genetic trait. But so, we could list some, right? Like sickle cell. You is, could. Is, so there, there are a few, but the vast majority. There are a few, but the vast majority are not. Okay. Um, you know. Um, okay, fair enough. So basically, so you, it's not. It's not really. It's not a good line of scientific not, inquiry. Not, not generally. Okay. All right. Um, 
Um, and especially not when you're looking at something that is multifactorial. It's, it's not usually worth the effort. For example, we've known for quite a long time exactly the genetic abnormality that results in sickle cell, okay. and we still don't have a cure for it. Um, so it's not necessarily worthy of, of a ton of effort necessarily in these situations. But when you look at maternal and infant mortality, um, a recent study showed that when black women have a black obstetrician, their risk of maternal and infant mortality is something like three times lower. Huh. Wow. Um, and so why is that? I mean, what does yeah. the, what's the cause of that? Um, I, would, I would say it's likely the minimization of that social distance right. and the, the, the misperceptions, misdiagnoses, inattention, et cetera, that can happen because of our own implicit biases about people who are a different color from and us. Could that work two ways? Because as a guy who studies interactions, I would think there's, I, I see the side of the physician paying more attention and the care team, but I also see the patient possibly being more comfortable and actually following and just, the advice. Following the advice and, and then disclosing yeah. more and more quickly as well. I think it's possible, but I always hesitate to put any of the responsibility on the patient. So I, I don't want to color it to say, well, it's because patients aren't doing X, Y, Z. In any interaction between a doctor and a patient, it is the doctor's responsibility to try to create as much as possible an environment where the patient feels safe and understood. Okay. So, Well, that's the part that you can have some impact on. Yeah. Right. But I would just think from what we know of the science of interaction. And identification. For sure. Sometimes the identification alone matters. Right. For sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, you that know. You're getting a patient. Right. Your positive patient yes. effect in those. Yes. And that's why representation is so important. It's one of the reasons why increasing the number of black, Latino, and indigenous people in medicine is so important. Yeah. Without actually segregating it. They're available, but it's not different medical so you know like there's always that that issue that when you segregate it's not as good and so if they're available people can choose them they're still part of a greater system that's intermixed well i'm not even thinking about that at that at this point because the truth is people can't always choose them so for the past 20 years or more the number of black people entering medical school has hovered at about six percent of each medical school class of the year it hasn't changed. Um, if that's six people starting, percent of all medical students starting, right. think about what percent that is who complete, who go into practice, and who stay in practice. Right. It's underrepresented. Grossly I think underrepresented. We're it's, yeah. 11 or 12 percent is the population. 13 percent, I think. Okay. Yeah. So let's call it, let's call it third. So it's half roughly. It's half it's of the representation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's even greater for uh, Latinos who are about 2 or 3% of medical school entrants. And oh, who, really? I in didn't some know places, that. So they're like in like the city of Houston, 40% of the population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I didn't realize that. Hello, management users. Today, I want to talk to you about executive team building. Our executive team building products help open the lines of communication so you and your core leadership team and smartly talk and think through thorny issues. We offer multi-session packages aimed to open up the minds and the mouths of those around you. So email or call us today at ondemandleadership.com. Go back to this idea of let's take this train of the conversation and then let's tie it back to uh, we 
We say our culture is that we go the extra mile for patients and each other, and yet we know that one of the challenges in uh, providing, and I mean, I think this certainly has been an issue for for maybe forever, but at least for hundreds of years, but the pandemic has put it in relief, these uh, yes, disparities health and in outcomes. Yeah, yeah. These health, care, health inequities. And so how do we, how do we, try to really make this better yeah. in a way that's consistent with who we say we are. Yeah. I, I want to begin with the humility of saying, I don't, I don't know that I have the answers on that, but I'll tell you some of the things that I think are really important. Um, one is to ensure equitable access to timely, efficient, effective, safe, high quality care. And um, to do that, we need to, um, reduce the number of uninsured people in this country. And we need to radically reform our healthcare system in general. That in and of itself will not remove all health inequities. No, but it's a but start. It's, but a, it's an important and major start. So how do we radically reform? I mean, just, I, I know that's a we huge. Could, right. Yeah, that's and huge. I can't claim to have the answers. But what's one or two of the key reforms? That, so, because I go back to the flash of the picture is what many listeners to this podcast know as implicit bias. And so, how do I fix that by, I, I know we need better insurance and maybe there's other things in the reform, but how does that work all the way down to the end of the pipeline? Right. And there's a physician like me, and I'm a white guy, and I'm at the prime of my career, and yet I'll fail the picture flash. How do we? Yeah. How do we? And but I'm committed to the. Yeah. I recognize the inequities. I want to try to correct that, and I'm committed to our mission of doing our best. How do yeah. we try to move the needle? Yeah. So, Jeff, I'll share with you my own strong personal bent in that regard, which is I ask the question, what is systemic racism? Systemic racism is the disproportionate allocation of goods, resources, um, and power based on racial groupings. And so how do you dismantle systemic racism? By dismantling the systems. Okay. And I think we tend to think about the personal interactions right. as mm -hmm. almost the most important or the, the, the proximate place to start. But the system actually controls system. invisibly. And no matter how good my personal interactions with you right. might be, I'm still living right, 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 in right. a yeah. racist system. And so I, I think, think we, we have to not lose our focus on the systemic elements, which involve, I think, pretty radical re- dress of um, our society overall. But even if you can't stomach the like pretty radical, and I will not say I know what that looks like, there are certain major but incremental things that we could be doing that would be making at least a modest difference and that we're failing to do. And so, Texas choosing not to Medicaid, engage on the Medicaid expansion, right. giving and, up hundreds of billions of dollars over yeah. time, and also ensuring that as a state, we became the leader in uninsured people. Our rates of uninsured have been increasing 
since the, the start of the Affordable Care Act, where for most states, it's been decreasing. So there are some major steps we can take in that regard. I think, and another, that's the more immediate. I think. I think that's you know you could do you could have an impact essentially tomorrow, right? If you did it today, you'd still have a healthcare system that's driven by some of the wrong, by some incentives that are perverse, right? Right. A healthcare system where reimbursement is based on volume of activity, um, uh, you know, and you'd also be faced with the reality that our lifelong health outcomes are driven more by the environment in which we grow up than they are by the health care we can access once we are in a situation where we have health issues. So tell me more about that. So you're saying where I grow up. How I grow up. How I grow up. If I have insurance early, if I have two parents in the home, are those kind of things or something different? No, it is some of those kind of things. So a child's lifelong health can be fairly accurately predicted by whether their parents had stable housing, okay. stable jobs, okay. and health uh, and uh, healthcare access when the child was growing up in the home. And is, Even if the kid was perfectly healthy. And is that huh. partly because the healthcare usually comes from stable work? Um. I'm sure it's partly related to that, and that's another one of the perverse insanities of our country. <laughs> we have right, linked right, right. insurance to employment when often the sick can't our, work. our time of greatest need for insurance is also when we tend to lose our employment. But I think it's also a reflection of the reality that lifelong health is equally about um, our environment as it is about kind of our individual choices or our interaction with the healthcare system when we have an illness. And... I, I wish I am not an expert in this, but there is um, an increasing body of literature that looks at something called weathering, which is weathering? weathering, which oh. is the, um, aging and stress processes hmm. that occur in black people at an accelerated rate, um, and that um, are likely some of the underlying causes of um, of. Uh, higher uh, right. propensity for right. a lot of other like, chronic illnesses. Being black in America is causes more stressful. Yes, and yeah. that creates these health outcomes when I'm yes. 50, 60, and or it's at least yep, virtual. and it's all the worse when um, for black children who are exposed to traumatic environments or traumatic events, um, who experience or see violence, including police violence, um, and uh, you know, there's actually. Um, studies that have been done looking at cortisol levels in yep. black children over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that stress, that yeah, fight yeah, or flight, yeah, that yeah. stress response is on so much more. And one of the most interesting places, interesting in a tragic way, that we see that manifested has to do with peak years for healthy pregnancies and deliveries. So for white women in the United States, the um, kind of peak time to have a baby is between the ages of 20 and 30. It would make sense, right? Your body is fully developed and you have some degree of economic and likely relational stability. Right. For black women, it's before the age of 20. Wow. Because the weathering effect really? has, yeah. by the time they're in their, black women are in our 20s, um, the impact is so significant that the risk of maternal and infant harm during or after pregnancy outweighs the reality that giving birth when you're 15 or 16 
induces so much economic and relational instability. So can I say a little bit more about how I think we change that? Yeah, that's so the first is to try as much as possible to address systemic racism. That includes access to goods like health insurance. It includes access to stable housing. It includes access to a living wage. Um, and those are many of them things that can be accomplished um, in part through legislation. Um, yeah, I would also think too, you know, obviously the opportunity has to be there for them to be able to get on the track for becoming doctors. And what we see constantly with people and how they choose their careers is the path that's most certain, the path that's been laid out by somebody else in their life or that they've been exposed continually to healthcare because somebody in their family was sick, that, that path that's more laid out is the one they're more likely to take. I would agree, but I still think that's far down the path. I do too. I think that's long-term. Yeah. But I think you set the table for it by ensuring that the systematic inequities in terms of access to stable housing, health care, and um, stable jobs that pay a living wage is addressed. Um, when you do that, you help create the environment in which communities can impact um, their quality of life as a community. So, for example, um, environmental racism. I mean, you know, you got all you do is look at maps of any city or region, and you'll see that where the black, Latino and poor people live is also where the environmental pollution is. The landfills, the um, chemical centers, the factories, right? Um, It's also a fact that when you look at those places, that's also where you see the fewest sidewalks, the least amount of green space, the least amount of uh, fresh food available in stores, the least amount of walkability, uh, the most number of fast food joints, the highest number of paycheck cashing places, the highest number of... Pawn shops. Yep, all those things. It's only communities that already have some degree of control over the resources that make life manageable that can then address that, both through local means and also through being more empowered with um, their their lawmakers. Um, All of that, I think, adds up to things like um, kids being able to see themselves more in community members around them. Um, But you don't even get there without having uh, intentional hiring practices in important places. Healthcare, of course, being one of them. Um, Teaching being another. Supply chain being another. Uh, And that's the place, I think, where we come back to the question of how do you um, engage more people of color to become healthcare workers? And, um, you know, I... I, Yeah, you're taking away, like, almost a learned helplessness. If they have the opportunity to actually have some power over their resources and be part of the community. You know, I, I hesitate to use terms like learned helplessness because that, that puts the locus of responsibility on the individual or even on the community. Um, racism and its multiple effects. See, I don't look at it that way. Yeah. I mean, you get learned helplessness because the system has taught you to be helpless. Right. But when we say, and the solution is for you to no longer have learned helplessness... Or no it longer feels have like, a system yeah, that... Yeah, I mean, to me, the solution is to, to try to dismantle the system that mm-hmm. creates that. Um, it's just, I think, and I don't, I don't know that you meant that, Cindy, it's just something that I'm super, uh, I'm super kind of keyed into, is the tendency to um, personalize or individualize responsibility for um, 
racial inequities on the individuals. Sure, you're fighting it generally in this country because we're super individualistic. Right. And so things, individuals get blamed for things that are systematic. And we have a collective insanity about racism where we think racism is actually black people's problem. And it's not. It's white people's problem. Um, But everything in our media and everything in our culture tends to pathologize black people (laughs) for experiencing the effects of racism. Um, So I'm just careful about that. But I think a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout our educational system is really, really important. That will increase the number of, of people of, of color who are in healthcare, and I think that's very important for that identification. It's also important for ensuring that we increase the number of uh, women and minorities on mm-hmm. clinical trials. Clinical trials are the I know, way we advance been, science. Historically, they've all been white males. It's, it's been very poor diversity on clinical trials, and the reality is that when the person encouraging you to go on the clinical trial is a woman or an underrepresented minority, and you are a woman or an underrepresented minority, it's more likely the conversation will happen and it's more likely that you'll go on the trial. Um, so so th- I think those are all things. And then you get to the most proximate, which is, well, what do we do with you know all of us? Many of us are well-meaning and we'd like to do better. And I think there is space for training and education and self-awareness about implicit bias and how it shows up and about how we can um, work against that by having certain standards for promotion and development, by learning how to do things like behavioral interviewing, by learning to use consistent approaches to um, performance management, um, by implementing certain uh, practices in hiring and recruitment that help remove our biases from us, right? There's, you know, you're aware of the studies that show that, you know, if right. someone's got a sure. black-sounding right. name, right. they're right. less oh, likely yeah. to have their CV pursued, right? Oh, Even just, if it's there's just good. that, I mean, it's not a study, it's anecdotal, but that lady who had three appraisals and had a yep. white person sit in for her and the home value is yep. so much double. more. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I think there, again, it's about processes as much as possible. Um, and then lastly, it's about relationships and how we interact with each other. I do think dialogue is important. I just don't think that dialogue in the absence of all of those other things gets us much. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to learn more about the topic, check out our show notes. And if you want to help us out, like, share, subscribe, and five stars are all deeply appreciated. See you next time on The Management Muse.